0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit iXL.com B E. That's iXL.com B E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am really excited to have Jamie Kassip on the program. He is the Chief Education Evangelist at Google. Jamie, welcome to Transformative Principle.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I met you in person a few months ago at a Education Elements event in Denver, and so it was neat to meet you and see you in person. I've been following you for a long time and, and excited to finally be able to talk to you on the podcast, so thank you for coming. Absolutely. i'm I'm honored to be invited. so thanks. So with education evangelist, people don't exactly know what that means at Google. Can you just give a little intro into what it is that you actually do and what that looks like for uh, your your big job? I guess?
1: Yeah. so the name was actually given to me, and I'll tell you how that happened. But I've been at Google for fourteen years in the education space just as long kind of fell into the education side a little bit by mistake in trying to find problems that Arizona State University was having back in 2006 because we had to open an office on campus and I met with the CIO and I asked him what his biggest problem was and he said email and at the time we had this cool product called Google for your domain and I had this crazy idea of like hey wouldn't it be cool if we could uh use Google for your domain at ASU and you could just use a Gmail as a, as a platform at this point, you know, Gmail was two years old. It wasn't even widely used. And he's like, yeah, let's do that. Two weeks later, we launched Google apps for education uh, at universities across the country. ASU was the first one. And, and, and so I kind of fell into that world where I'm like, wow, the role that technology can play in education can be huge. And then dove in first head first into the space and, Couple years later, I had another crazy idea about launching um, Google Apps that we now call G Suite into the K twelve space. Even though there were some schools, I, I noticed some schools were already using it on their own. But after talking to lots of principals and superintendents, there were specific things that the tool needed to have to be able to launch it into K twelve. I convinced uh, um, some engineers to build some things like a wall garden and other things, and then we. Released Google Apps in the K-12, and you know today we have 100 million users using the tools around the world. And then the craziest idea I had was this idea of launching Chromebooks into the education space. And that's when two of us got on the road for six months and talked to tech directors and principals across the country, trying to get them to look at computing in a different way. And so that's you know those are the big things externally that I've done. I've done a bunch of things internally, but my focus has always been to see it, be a subject matter expert in the education space. Uh, my passion for education isn't just through the technology because it's not. It's My passion mm-hmm. for education comes from my background. I'm a first-generation American. I was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, New York. I grew up with a single mother on food stamps and welfare. And the only reason I get to talk to you today is because of education. So, To me, education is the most important thing that we can focus on. And I see everything that we have in front of us as an opportunity to bring education to the next level. The term evangelist came, you know, I was, when I was out speaking about this back in 2006, seven, eight, you know, I was, you know, Google education manager. I don't even remember what the title was. And I had the, uh, the executive Uh director of technology for the state of Michigan. And I was speaking at an event in Michigan and he came up to me and we've been friends ever since. He came up to me after the event and he's like, what's your title? And I, and I think, you know, I'm like Google education manager. He's like, no, you're an evangelist. You you Hmm. need to call yourself an evangelist. And the the title kind of stuck. Right. And the whole point is that for me, it's not a technology evangelist. It's not a it's not a company evangelist, right? That title goes with me wherever I go no matter what I do, which is the education part. That I think there's good news in education and that you know, I as much as we try to fix it and we try to change it, I just I just think there's so much potential that we're not taking advantage of when it comes to education.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's why I want to have you on the podcast cuz you you shared something similar when it, when we were in person talking and and I thought that that was just so so perfect for my audience because we do want to change. We want to transform education, but we want to transform our education. We don't want to change how we use technology. We want to change how we learn and how we teach and how we help move kids through the system that we have. I do want to go back a little bit because when, when you were doing that work with Arizona state, I had just started teaching. Uh, that was my first year and I have a domain name, jethrojones.com and mm-hmm. I got the Google apps for your domain. I put that on mine and then I noticed that my kids didn't have email addresses, but I wanted them to start blogging in class. And so right. they needed email addresses. And so I just uh, made a bunch of email addresses for a small group. And then the next year I actually had to uh, write to Google and say, I need more because I want to do this with my kids in school. And so I just had every one of my kids in school just made a email address form and then got them into the Google suite of apps through that way. And so when Google Apps for Education came out, I was really grateful because then I didn't have to manage all of that myself. And it's just, it's amazing how access to those things really changed. So my first year teaching, I was at an inner city school and I was the only white kid or white person in the room. Mm -hmm. And these kids just had never had the experience of talking to people outside of their immediate space before. And the fact that we were able to do that was just inspiring and it really opened my eyes to how education is not just you know something for kids in a classroom and that's it within those four walls but that it can expand outside of there and for example these kids would start blogging and then i would get other people on when twitter came out i'd use that but i'd get other people like my family i'd call them and say hey the, my kids just wrote this stuff on a blog i need mm-hmm. you to go like leave a comment so they Feel validated and heard. And so my dad, who's a super big nerd and was living in Brazil at the time, he would go on and comment on a couple. And then they would say, you know, where they were from. And these kids were like, somebody in Brazil commented mm-hmm. on my blog. That's crazy. And like right. really people care about education all over the world and have the same feelings as you about how it is so important. And right. And I what I appreciate about that so much is that it enables us to really think about things differently. So with what are you thinking about right now about education? Like right now we've got the coronavirus closures that are closing everything up and and schools aren't in session this is going to be released later. And you know, we don't know if schools gonna be back in session or not. What are you thinking about as it relates to this situation with education?
1: Yeah. So I just want to stay take a step back there because I think something that you just mentioned is important to, to point out. And and I think it's a little different for me than it is other people that I hear talk about this, right? Which is this idea of transforming education and you know, fixing education and, and, and making it work better. I love the line of, it's not about changing technology, it's about changing what education does, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, I like to start my conversations with, you know, these, I, these things called facts. And the facts That's that crazy. I like to use <laughs> with, with people is education's not broken, right? Play with me for here a second, right? So education's not broken. It did exactly what it was designed to do, right? Exactly, did it work for everyone? No. That's a different conversation. That's an equity conversation. That's an equality conversation. We can have that conversation, but in its design, it was designed to produce what it produced. And you know, 30% of the population should, or 15% of the population, should have a higher education degree to manage all the people that were working in factories. It did exactly what it was designed. We, mean, we built a superpower of a country on the education system we built in this country, right? So I like to start with the fact with, you know, again, looking at facts, graduation rates are higher today than they've ever been in history. IQ rates keep going up 10 points every 10 years, right? Like, so this idea that it's broken, I don't want to start there. What I, where I want to start is that the education system served us well up to this point and it did exactly what it was designed to do and we should all take a bow now we need to do what our forefathers in education did 150 years ago and ask ourselves what does the education system need to look like for the next 150 years or even the next five years but that's different right that's not education is broken and you suck and everything's terrible that is a calling that is that we all need to step up and and build what the new system is going to look like for the future and so it's important to look at it that way because Related to the question that you're asking about where we are today, one of the things that has come out of where we are today, and I think where we will be in six months and maybe for a while, there's just all these things that I'm reading about, kind of second waves and third waves and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, variations. There's an article I read today in the New York Times about how there's a there's this strand that's affecting kids. And it's just, you know, who knows where we'll be in six months. But one of the things that in the education space that's come out of all All this is a couple of clear things number one is for those educators that were like oh this is no problem we'll just take what we do in school and just bring everything online and then everything just failed miserably right so clearly that doesn't work and 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 what's great about that is that it's the best example of you can't take technology and put it on top of the current system and expect the same kinds of results it just doesn't work that way right or even expect better results and so what I think what's happening is oh no wait we can't do that we need to change our models we need to change things in different ways so that's one the second thing is and I'm even guilty of this we all talk about 21st century skills and you know we've been talking about these for so long we call them 21st century skills when we're 20 years into the 21st century I think it makes us and without really anybody admitting this when we say 20, oh, you need to develop 21st century skills, I think it gives us permission to think that those skills are something for the future. Not now, but for the future. Because if you call them critical skills that we need immediately, you'd have a different approach to the 21st century skills, right? And yeah. out of those skills, problem solving, collaboration, creativity, whatever you want to put on your top five list, to me, you can you can make, you know, I can make communication under creativity. I can make critical, I, I can make digital skills under cr- critical thinking like there's the five things that you come up with the one and we've all treated them equally these are all important and that's true but the thing that's come out of this pandemic is that one of them stands head and shoulders above the rest and that is the ability to learn we need to teach our students the ability to learn and i don't mean the ability to take a test or the ability to answer questions or the ability to outline a textbook i'm talking about this self awareness where It gives, it empowers, and I hate the word empower, by the way, but where it empowers students to say, I don't know how to do something. I've admitted, I don't know how to do something. How do I learn how to do it? And then how do I know whether I did it or not? And it's this contained ecosystem where the ability to learn is about self-reflection, right? Mm -hmm. So it changes conversations. And by the way, this is a problem with adults as well. I, I can't tell you how many adults will come to me and it's like, you're very creative. I wish I was creative. I'm not very creative. Or, oh, I can't even balance my checkbook. I'm bad at finance or I'm bad at math, right? You hear these from people all the time. My reaction to that is you've chosen not to be creative. You've chosen to be bad at math. That's a choice you've made because the ability to learn is there. Everything that you need to be good, at being creative is out there for you. It's just a question of whether you recognize it and know how to do it. So this ability to learn starts with this, I am not very creative, turns into, huh, I have an opportunity to become more creative or I need to learn to be more creative or I'm not good at math, turns into, I have to find a way to be better at math, right? And it starts with that self-awareness that turns into, now I can be good at this. And then it turns into, how do I know I'm good at this, right? And it's this idea that learning happens on a continuous basis. And education, and this is all our fault, education has become a process, something that you go through. You know, I am educated. I go through education. You are an educator. And the reality is that education is a mindset and that it's this constant consistent understanding and awareness of things that you don't know and what you do know. Like, I'm sure you've seen the matrix right
0: yep. mm-hmm. but
1: but my favorite part of the matrix is i don't know how to do kung fu you plug the thing in your head and 10 seconds later you know how to do kung fu well that that can happen today it doesn't happen in 10 seconds but if you want to learn kung fu you can learn kung fu right like all the material of the yeah. matrix is out there for you ready to ready to learn and and i think it's important that for teachers to experience that right like they i it would be great if during this time teachers and principals said Let me pick something I don't know how to do at all. And it doesn't have to be education-related. It can be, you know, how to print pictures. It could be, you know, how to drive a manual car. Whatever it is, just a thing, and then go learn how to do it, right? And, And if you experience that, you realize that time is irrelevant, that it might take you 10 minutes to learn fractions. It might take me 10 years to learn fractions. But the time is irrelevant. The ability to learn is always there, and so I think the one thing that's come out of this is that an understanding that our students need to be self-directed. That we have to be there as a guide. We have to be there as a support mechanism. We have to be there to provide the resources that they need. But because we can't be in the same room with them all the time, they have to be able to have ownership over their learning. They have to have ownership over what they're curious about and driving their learning through. You know, exploration and experimentation, uh, and then assessment to determine whether they learn something or not. So that, to me, is the opportunity that I think we have in front of us.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you said that. I have in my consulting practice what I do with schools is I help them move through that process of moving from a teacher centered instructional framework to a student driven learning framework, where they basically, if you can get your kids to direct their own learning, then that doesn't mean that you're losing teachers or your job is done. It just means that you are setting those kids up for success for the rest of their lives, like you were just saying. And so that is what my entire focus is on whenever I work with, with schools or districts, because that is what needs to happen. And it's it's the only thing that we can actually control in education where we can get a desired benefit and know that we're going to get it. If if we can look at our classroom at 30 or 100 kids or whatever is in there and we can say, every one of these kids knows how to learn on their own, then we've done a successful job of helping them. You know, if we say like every kid in here knows how to do fractions, that's all well and good, but that isn't, that's not going to prepare them for everything they could possibly need in life. And what you said is exactly right. Once you know how to learn, then that is the critical skill. So for example, my wife is a very creative person, always done things, but has never tried watercolor painting before never even picked up a brush and watercolor paint. So that, that hasn't ever been a thing. However, when we moved to Fairbanks, Alaska a few years ago, uh, she met a guy who's a teacher, and he taught her how to do watercolor painting. And you know, since then, she's painted every week and done all this practice and is really, really good. And so I think I could do something similar and become good at painting, but I've decided that watercolor painting is not something that I'm interested in doing Right now, and it's okay for me to make that choice and to not be interested in it. But the thing that I am trying to learn is I'm trying to learn how to play the piano. And so I'm putting in the time and effort to play the piano because to me, that is something important. Now, when we try to instill this thing, this same belief system in our kids, the same mindset in our kids, we can see the same things happening. And the problem that we face is that the school has an expectation of when and what they learn. And then they get frustrated that they can't learn it fast enough or that not everybody else has learned it as fast as them. What's your advice to someone who's trying to do this kind of thing and help kids be student-driven and drive their, their own learning? How do you help them manage within the system that still exists at their school?
1: Yeah, so, so I think that... You know, again, it's all about choices. And and I think the will is there. I think that there's fragments of the structures that we need. You know, think about all the years that we've spent talking about, it shouldn't be about specific curriculum things. It should be about standards. It should be about, you know, students should be able to meet the standard in lots of different ways. So all the stuff that we need to make these decisions is already out there, right? There's lots of school districts that have that, yet they they teach to the test, right? That's a choice, right? There's lots of schools that show us that you don't have to do that. And, and so I think it's important, again, back to this idea that the model of education served us well for a very long time. I, if you asked me back in, 19, in 1975, what kids should know, I would be very prescriptive with what they should know. Oh, they should definitely know American history. Oh, they should definitely know about what happened around the world. Oh, they should definitely know about what happened with Native Americans. Like I I could go a list because to having access to that information was almost impossible. So if you ask me in 1975, what happened on December 7th, 1941, I'd be like, I have no idea. I'll, I'll go find out and I'll tell you tomorrow. Right? Like I... I had to go look that up i had to go i didn't have an encyclopedia in my house right where i had to go to the library i had to look it up that information was hard to get to so it made sense to put facts and figures in our in our kids heads now again given the world that we face and what's happening do we still need to do that and the answer is no but the concept is still the same i want my kid to know history because why why do i want my kid to know history not because I want them to you know, spit back facts and figures to me. I want them to know history because you can't understand the future unless you know the history. You also understand that uh, history repeats itself. So this pandemic that we're going through now, if, if, you, if you go talk to experts of the 1917, 1919 pandemic, and they'll tell you exactly what's going to happen next, right? And, and, and because they studied it. So I want them to understand the concepts of understanding history, right? Again, the ability to learn. And then I want them to pick what they want to learn, right? Like, so if, if my kid is interested in, uh, like, I live in Arizona in Phoenix. Like, my my daughter and I talk about water because we live in the desert, right? Water becomes this very important topic. Did, I mean, most people don't realize this, but the Phoenix, the fifth largest city in the country, is is built upon a canal system, a waterway system that was built 1,500 years ago by Hohokam Indians, Right. I want her to dive deep into that. I don't care that she doesn't know what happened during the French Revolution. If she becomes interested in that, then she can go learn about it. But the point is that I want to understand that so she can understand the concepts of waterways and how it happened and how did they know how to do that and what did they use. And we can go deep on that. So I want her to know history. I want her to understand the role of history in learning and why it's important. But the the actual history thing doesn't matter to me. And so I think we need to break away from that idea that everyone needs to know something. If anything, I think there are, again, to to give something in return, there are things that I want our students to know, right? Like they should all take a civics class. They should all understand Mm -hmm. how government works. They should all know that there are three branches of government. And I would spend a whole year just on that topic because nobody knows anything, right? And so... There are specific things that I, I want I want them to know finance and how, you know, like things that are math. I want them to know math and why math works. But we, we teach math, not because it's important, but because we've created a list of things that they're supposed to know about math. When in reality, when I talk to students, when I talk to my daughter, I, I'm five years old. I've been convincing her since she was three that math is the most important thing because math is everything. Everything that she looks at has math in it. Everything has an equation to it, a mathematical formula to it, everything. And if you understand that, then you can build anything, you can do anything, you can understand anything, right? And that is powerful, right? Like There's a mathematical formula to why one part of my grass doesn't get green where the other one does based on, on heat rays and sun and angles of the earth. And I can go deep on math just on a shade on my grass with math. And, and that concept of teaching them how to learn math because of the things that they're passionate about want to understand, that's the important thing. Algebra might or might not be, depending on what the subject is. So I think that we can, we can look at very specific things like math, reading, civics. Everyone should know these things. And we don't even do that, right? And so even the things that we should be specific about, we don't go dive, dive deep
0: into. Yeah, and and we say often that that's because there's there's too much other things that we need to be focusing on, and and that may that may be the case right now, but we still have that choice, like you were saying before, of what to spend our time doing. So, a quick example: at my last school, I was principal. We created this program called Synergy, and what we did with the kids is we said, "You need to use this time, uh, an hour and a half, twice a week." To make the world a better place. And you can define what make the world a better place means, but you need to take the initiative and do something. And so we had some kids who did a bunch of different things and we had like 400 kids. So, you know, they were in groups and they were all doing a bunch of different things. And we had probably like 50 different groups doing different things. And this one group of girls, I went through what they did in with their project and they passed off 32 different standards from the Alaska state standards. And when I looked at it after the fact, I was just blown away at how much they did. And if I would have asked them, which standards did you pass off? They definitely would not have known because that wasn't their focus. Right. But I, as the educator who could see what they were actually doing, could tell that it was 32 different standards that they passed off. Just amazing. And right. what the the activity they did is they wanted to train elementary school kids on how to do cheer soccer and volleyball. And so they would bring those kids down into our gym. They'd go across this uh, field to go get the kids from the elementary school um, in the winter at 20, bring the kids over in all their snow gear, get them out of it and have them start doing this stuff. So pretty much no adult intervention at all. These kids led all by themselves. They didn't, they didn't have anybody saying this is what you have to do. We would just ask questions. And I, And they actually had, they started with a substitute, went to another substitute and then ended with a long-term substitute and they were still able to be this successful. So like without any adult support, because they didn't really have it, (laughs) these girls made some awesome things happen. And it was incredible to see how they could achieve so much with so little guidance from adults when typically we feel like kids can't do anything without us standing there telling them what to do. So you know, I talked to these girls afterward and asked them the kinds of things they learned and they were talking about all those other things. Well, we didn't know how to get the principal to say yes, to bring the kids over here. So we had to like write her a letter and tell her how we were going to keep the kids safe. And we had to like come up with a plan of how to make sure they were safe so that we could tell the principal that's what we're doing. And like persuasion skills, writing skills, research skills, all those things came into play that they were able to do. We didn't have any injuries because the girls took care of those younger girls and made sure that they were going to be healthy and successful and weren't going to get hurt. They stretched, they took precautions, and it was it was amazing to see. And that can happen with any group of kids. And, and when you give kids the opportunity to lead like that, they really do step up to the plate when they believe that you're being truthful and that you're really going to let them do it. And we had to, because they didn't have a mentor and an adult who was consistent, you know, going through three different substitute teachers. They just didn't have somebody there all the time to say, this is, you know, the next step. They had to figure it out all on their own. And Jamie, I, it was amazing. I just cannot talk and gush enough about how awesome it was to see what they were doing.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's important to realize that you, you know, here's a, the, the challenge to educators is that you know, again, I do this with my five-year-old. I do this with all my kids, but I I do this with my five-year-old because she's the latest, but she, there is nothing, you you give me a subject, geology, uh, mathematics, basic mathematics, history, any kind of education subject, reading, writing, anything that you want. Give me any topic and any subject and I can create lessons based on what she's curious about. Exactly. When she says, um, where when we pulled the, the the drain on the tub in the bathroom and she goes where does the water go yeah i can I can teach so many subjects with that question right yep. or when she said the other day she I, she asked me why why doesn't it snow in phoenix mm-hmm. i think about the subjects that I can go deep on I can go into math geology i can I can go into the whole study of climate change I can go into studies of of, of deserts and why the desert is different than other places. I can go into the rotation of sun. I can go into the phases of moons. I can go deep on that question alone. Right. And so, yes, those things are important to know. It's important to know math and science and, and, and arts and all these other things. And we can go deep depending on what they're curious about. But the important thing that we have to keep in mind for those that are listening that I'm like, yes, I'm in, I'm going to go do this tomorrow is that you're going to go try it and it's not going to work. Exactly. And the reason why it's not going to work is because we've, we've brainwashed our, our kids and that's okay. We got to fess up. We got to admit it. And then we got to fix it because I, one of the things that I hear all the time from education consultants and other people are like, you know, here, here are ways to bring back, or here's a way to, to foster children's curiosity. Right. And, and I'm like, or, or to get kids to be curious? I'm like, no, we've gotten in their way of being curious, right? We need to give it back to them. And so we need scaffolding. And this was an experience. So I, I teach 10th grade communication skills at the Phoenix Coding Academy, a school that I started here in Phoenix. And I teach 10th grade communication skills. And I went in there the first time I taught this with a co-teacher, uh, my guide. It was the first time I have taught at the university level. I taught I've taught college classes for 10 years or actually longer than that. But I, I went in teaching communication skill with 10th graders. And one of my first assignments, you know, second class in maybe, I said to all the students, 90 students, I said, listen, in this communication class, you're going to learn how to present. So your first assignment is you're going to present a five-minute presentation on anything that you want. Thinking that I was the coolest teacher in the world, like I'm here to free you, mm-hmm. and they lost their minds. Yeah. They could not handle that. They couldn't handle it. I, I, eighty-seven of the kids are like, no, no. I, what do you mean? I, I don't. What, what do you mean? Anything? I'm like anything. Like, and I've had like these one-on-one conversations with them. Uh, like, no, I need more guidance. Or like, okay, what do you, what do you do when you go home from school? Nothing. What do you do at night? Oh, nothing. What what do you do? What are you interested in? Nothing. What hobbies do you have? Nothing. And of course they do, but they're so used to being told what to do that we can't just turn it on for them. So the next time I taught the class, I said, okay, here's your first assignment. Five minute presentation on how you get ready to go to school in the morning, right? Again, a little more wide open. They can come up with different ideas and different topics. There's nothing very prescriptive about that, but it gives them a general guideline, right? We have to give them scaffolding because we don't have to do it for five year olds. We just let, you know, one of my favorite uh, Stephen Covey quotes is if you want to see pure, I think it was Stephen Covey, if you want to see pure genius, creative genius. Oh, no, no. It was uh, Gordon McKinsey in his book, Orbiting a Giant Hairball. If you want to see pure creative genius, Look at an undisciplined two-year-old. Yeah. Like that's just pure creative genius. So with little kids, you don't need to do this. You just need to not get in their way. But with older students, if you want to do this, the best advice that we can give administrators and teachers is we need to create some scaffolding to get them there. That we can't just walk in the class and turn it on and be like, okay, you guys are gonna be self-directed now. It just it doesn't, it's not gonna work. And then you're like, see, it didn't work. So we have to go back to doing it the way that we used to do it. You have to understand that it's not gonna work.
0: Yeah. And so instead of running away from and being afraid of that, it's not going to work. You just start small. And so what I, what I coach people on is just start giving them some voice and choice, whatever, wherever they're at, just start giving them some choice. If they, if they have an assignment, you give them some choice instead of saying, do the math, you know, all the odd numbers say, do whatever problems you want and they'll lose their minds. (laughs) They'll be like, what we can, no way. Right. But like, Just start there. And that's an easy place to get started because it is, they're ready for it. They just have to believe that we're going to let them actually get away with it. You know, and, and that's the thing that they, they haven't, they can't trust that we're really going to let them do it on their own. That was the biggest problem we saw when we were doing the school wide is kids were like, okay, when's the other shoe going to drop? And you're going to tell me I'm doing it wrong. Like they, they were literally waiting for that.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, if you really want to see how bad it is. Uh, here's a fun project is, you know, walk into a class of sixth graders plus and, and say, and, or whatever grade you start writing papers in. Right. Mm-hmm. And you say, I need you to write a paper on even give them a subject. I don't care. Write a paper on the pandemic and your experience with it. And that's it. Don't give them how long it has to be. Don't tell them how many words, just tell them that and they will, they will die. Mm-hmm. They won't know what to do. Like. Some kids would be like, what, really? Like, yeah, I don't care. If, it's a, if you can sum it up in a sentence, do it in a sentence. If you can do it in a book, write a book, right? And kids will die because they won't know what to do. But, you know, it's just like, that's not the real world. The real world is that. I, I read another article this weekend about scientists at Arizona State University. They're creating a virus, creating a good virus that can go into your body and it kills cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just huge breakthrough like can you imagine someone saying oh that's great i need you to write a, a your your research report has to be 100 pages yeah but that's you can't go higher than 100 pages yeah. right <laughs> like like that's just not the way the world works and so it's a, and and so that's that's the one end of it the other end of it is you know you think about a car company a car company spends millions and millions of dollars building a car and researching it and putting it together and all the things and then they try to sell it to you in 30 seconds right so everything in between is, is wide open. So it's, a, again, it's an opportunity. It it also makes life a lot more interesting for a teacher. If they're grading uh, things uh, that are completely random compared to, you know, everyone handing you the exact same paper.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, you're, we could have a whole nother hour long conversation about this, but your grading criteria needs to be different. It's not about, you know, what, what standards you met or what expectations you met at that point. It's it's mm-hmm. completely different. And that's that's the beauty. In our synergy thing that we did, we were able to make that during an ungraded class. And so there was no grade to hold over the kids' head to force them to do something. There was no grade to tell them how they did, you know, A, B, C, or D. There was only right. how did this make the world a better place and define what world is? Well, it made my life better because I got to do this one thing. Um, and that could be enough. You know, it doesn't have to be like the whole entire world is different now because of this, but little steps in the right direction are worth it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And most most people don't believe me when I say this, but it's absolutely true. My my, I have a nineteen year old who's in his first year in college, and he went to high school for four years, and I never once looked at his grades mm-hmm. ever. I they're his grades, and I didn't want to put that pressure on him. Right. So if he walked into a class and the, if it was a been it was a bad class. Then, you know, he uh, he knew he was going to get a C. He didn't have to worry about disappointing me. It was about him, right? And so if we can get that to your point of, like, stop holding things over their heads and instead giving them opportunities, I I think you'll see the results. And unfortunately, because it doesn't happen right away, people give up on any
0: effort they put into it. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a great conversation. There were a couple of things we didn't get to, like okay. how you run seven-minute meetings. We'll just save that for later. All right. And then... I put a link in the show notes at uh, transformativeprinciple dot to your linear versus vision way of looking at things. A link to your video about your to do list that you did a little while ago. Yeah, really good stuff. So I encourage people to check that out. In closing, though, Jamie, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Just one thing. So so
1: I, let's use the let's use the seven minute minute meeting thing. Like so, all you have to understand about the seven minute meeting is that whatever time you set up for a meeting. That's how much time it'll take. That's all you need to know. You set up an hour meeting, it's going to take an hour. You set up a seven-minute meeting, it's going to take seven minutes, right? And so that's the principle behind a seven-minute meeting is just set up as much time as you think you need to get whatever it is that you want to get done. That being said, if you're setting up seven-minute meetings, I think the most important thing that a principal can do is empower their teachers, right? I, look, I've worked across lots of different work groups. I, I worked for Governor Cuomo, the first one, for a couple of years. I worked uh, at Accenture for seven years in consulting. So I've worked at in banking. I worked on the Bank of America Nations Bank merger. I worked at uh, United Health Group. I've worked at American Express. I, I've worked in all work groups, technology, education. And there is no more passionate and dedicated workforce as a whole than teachers, you have that right you were, you got them on board they're not they didn't come to work for you to become multimillionaires or to just because they take the summers off now you you know standard deviation but the 80% rule you have them how do you turn them on how do you say to them you know cuz again the three things that motivate all of us are the same three things purpose auto- autonomy and mastery and so as a principal you got purpose right you got teachers who have purpose how do you give them autonomy so that they can come up with the solutions that you're seeking because they're the ones who are the closest to the problem and they're going to be able to create the solution? And then your job as a principal is to focus on the third thing, which is giving them the resources to create mastery. What are the tra- What's the training, the professional development, the resources that they need to be good at what they do? And if you can focus on that, I, I think we can do some tremendous things in the education space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for being part of transformative principle. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. For those of you who would like to follow Jamie, he is at Jay Cassup on Twitter and his YouTube channel is just Jamie Cassup. So Jamie, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.